Hello, everyone. I'm Darian Gold, and welcome to All Things Pilates Season 5. There is a collective fascination with Joe Pilates, his method and inventions. The exercise paradigm continues to evolve, as does our understanding of Joe's genius. So join us, because we know there is always more to explore. Our hands. How often do you think about your hands and all they do for you each and every day? We put them to work the moment we get out of bed until we turn the lights off at night. Our hands grab, wave, lift, hold, caress, and in addition, our wrists and arms allow us to practice, for example, the long stretch series on the reformer or the pull-up on the Wanda chair. Did you know that the forearm alone has over 20 muscles? Though crucial to everyday activities, our hands don't get all that much attention. And Joe understood this. He invented devices to help strengthen fingers, hands, and wrists. The hands tensometer and the beanbag roll-up device can be found in many Pilates studios. And who knows what else Joe Pilates would have invented had he lived longer. To learn about our hands from a different perspective is our guest today, Justin Cottle, a licensed massage therapist who teaches anatomy using human cadavers. He's conducted classes with medical and dental assistants, EMTs, paramedics, orthopedic and plastic surgeons, and closer to home, yoga and Pilates teachers. In 2012, Justin unexpectedly found himself working at the Institute of Human Anatomy in Utah. And lucky for us, besides their Utah facility, this institute has a YouTube channel that brings online viewers into their lab for an intimate experience. This channel also happens to have over 5 million followers. That's a lot of followers, Justin. Hi, thank you for coming on to the show. Hi, Darian. Yes, it is a lot of followers, and thank you for having me. How did that happen, actually? So we're a small-knit group. There's about three of us. Actually, no, we have four. But originally, there were three of us that were kind of been here since 2012, and we'd originally always wanted to go online. We had discussed like, doing online courses, this, that, or the other. But what ended up really kicking it off was I lost my job. I was teaching at a local massage school, and it closed its doors. And I found myself in this position where I just had some extra time and I felt like maybe this is the time we actually push go and do that thing that we'd been talking about doing for a few years now. So we just started this really just a surprising path of contacting various social media platforms, asking if it would be okay to even put cadavers online. And before you knew it, uh, we found ourselves with millions of followers on TikTok, uh, Instagram, and YouTube. So it was something that we had talked about do, wanting to do, but uh, it even took us by surprise with how quickly it all happened once the ball got rolling. The social media administration people, they were receptive? Yes, yes. So because the way we do it is, I mean, obviously the cadavers, if anyone's ever seen our content, the cadavers don't have any blood. So I think that was really good for these different social platforms and understanding that the graphic nature of the content wasn't nearly as graphic as you'd think it would be just by hearing it saying like we're working with human cadavers. But I sent sample videos specifically. I sent it to TikTok. Uh, that's how we started it. Um, I created a sample video of what I thought might perform well on the platform, sent it to them, and they actually got excited. And this was before TikTok was the behemoth it is today. And so what they ended up doing is contacting me directly and asking, hey, how can we help you be successful on our platform? Um, so I think it was also, it was just what we were trying to do. People saw that right away because it was so unique. And given that it wasn't nearly as graphic, I think that also helped these social platforms be supportive. Okay, that makes sense. I wanted to ask you about a video a while back that you had posted on your YouTube channel. 
and that was of a fully intact arm. And that included the wrist, the hand, and the fingers. And as I mentioned in the opening, the hands and fingers in particular, they don't always get a lot of attention, yet we expect them to be available at all times. What can you tell us about the fingers, hands, and wrists that might be helpful for the Pilates practitioner and or are there interesting aspects to the hands in general that might help us use them differently? Great questions. Great questions. You know, the hand, there's always this is this is hard for me because there's so much that I could I could actually talk about. But one of the things that I love to tell people about is to focus on the nerve ending density within the fingers alone. Um, I often do this experiment with my students where I'll have I'll, I'll pull a student. I'll do my best to say this over audio and describe it properly. But I'll um, I have one of my students come up in front of the class and I have them turn their head away and give me their arm. And then what I do is I actually use two pencils and poke on their arm at the same time on their anabrachium, so on their forearm. And if the pencils are multiple inches or centimeters apart, what can happen is they can easily determine, oh, yeah, I'm being poked with two different pencils. But the closer you actually get the pencils together on the forearm, even though you're still poking them with two pencils, they are not able to discern how many pencils they're being poked with. And that is because there are not, there's not a high level of nerve ending density in the antebrachium. But if I then have them turn their palm upward and I do the same thing on their palm, all of a sudden they're getting better and better until I get to the very tip of the fingertips. No matter how close I put those pencils together, they can always, without fail, say I'm being poked with two pencils. And this just goes to show that the obscene amount of nerve ending density on your fingertips alone uh, just goes to show how they are equipped and they have evolved for us to navigate our uh, navigate our, our environment. And it's something that people, I think, we take for granted because we're just so used to it. But I often say, like, when was the last time you went to a fabric store and you saw this fabric that looked enticing and then you rubbed your elbow on it to be sure? That was the first thing. It's like, no, you know, we always use our fingertips. And it just goes to show that, like, the the, the hands are... You know, we all know they are capable of grasping, they're capable of, you know, manipulating, but I don't think people properly understand just how sensitive they are, especially when you add in uh, fingerprints. Fingerprints along were thought to be solely for grip. What we actually now realize is that fingerprints probably do contribute to improved grip, but if you were able to zoom in on a finger on a fingerprint, there are these raised areas called papillae, and what will happen is when you drag your fingertips across a surface, it actually deforms. And then as soon as you move uh, far enough past, that papillae will snap back. And basically what I'm saying here is when you deform your fingerprint, it sends a neurological signal to your brain to help you interpret texture. Fingerprints, while they improve grip, are likely there to help you say, oh, I'm touching plastic. Oh, I'm touching wood. Oh, I'm touching rubber, some, some type of texture. And when you put all this together, it's just amazing to me when you look at, say, like Pilates practitioners or yoga practitioners in that your ability to actually balance, position yourself properly, all those things, those are using the same nerve endings and the amount of information that's going to your brain and your brain is able to process it in the feedback systems and how everything's going back and forth. It is absolutely incredible just when you think about the sheer amount of signals being sent to the brain from the hand with some very basic movements. Well, for example, if we're balancing on our hands, whether we're, okay, so we're in a plank position. So I'm thinking that most of us focus on the wrists. We may not be quite so tuned into the role of our fingers. And yet it's the fingers that are sending more of the messages to the brain. Yes. So you I mean, you're obviously your wrist is still going to be sending signals as well. But I think it's important to understand that everything begins with the point of impact or the point of interaction which is going to be primarily with the fingertip, fingertips. I mean, even if, say, the palm is full, maybe you have your palm fully planted on the ground or something like that. Still, the fingertips are going to be sending the bulk of the signals, at least in the first, the first aspects of that signal cascade. And so that means that the position, what you do, every single response, whether you're bending your wrist in some aspect, maybe you're, however you're deciding to balance, all of that, 
is in response to the fingertips and how they are actually interacting with the ground or whatever surface you're interacting with. And even those of us who are on the apparatus and we're gri- we are gripping and and our fingers are around a bar, for example, it, the palm isn't flat. It can't be flat. We're holding onto a bar. It has the same messaging just because the fingers aren't flat. Now the fingers are around a bar, so they're curled under. It's the same messaging, right? Even though we're flexing, we're flexing the fingers opposed to just having them extended. Absolutely. I tend to I tend to look at everything through an evolutionary lens. I think that is the most effective way to really understand what you're looking at. And I'll, I'll try to be quick with this. I often tell people that anatomy, as interesting as it really is, is actually kind of a boring science because all you're really saying is, okay, this is that thing and this is what it does. So this is the liver and it makes bile. At the end of the day, it's really not all that exciting. Then if you want to ask, okay, well then how does it make bile? That's where you get into the physiology of things. And physiology is actually very exciting, but it's very complicated and it can be very overwhelming. But I think what, and that's what most of the modern medical field, whether that's the holistic side or whether that's your traditional medicine side, it doesn't really matter where, most of them stop at physiology. And I think many people don't really think to ask, but why is that thing that way? And evolutionary biology to me is a real it's not the only response to this in terms of why, but I think what's fascinating to think about is, well, what did the hand evolve to do? And one of the things it evolved to do is grip. To, to grip. You know, I mean, that's one of its primary functions was to grip the shoulder, everything, how we can swing from trees, the motion's actually called brachiation. All of that is has an evolutionary purpose. And so to me, it's interesting to think about, you know, with Pilates and with the equipment you use, what you're actually doing is you're finding a way to almost plug into these ancient evolutionary pathways of how the anatomy evolved. So we can say, this is what it is. This is what it does. All of that's interesting, but it's it's fascinating to think that it's almost like you're cluing into something far more ancient than um, people may realize. That is fascinating. Yeah. Now, what happens if somebody has arthritis in their hands? You as a massage therapist, I'm sure you you had patients like that, correct? Oh, yes, for sure. And how do you deal with that kind of condition? You know, it, it depends on the type of arthritis you have. I mean, there's there's different types of arthritis. You can have an inflammatory or a non-inflammatory arthritis. So a non-inflammatory would typically be seen with those who do a lot of labor, manual labor with their hands. So basically, it's just the laws of physics take over. You know, there's only so much you can do with your hands before cartilage starts wearing away and all of those just aging happens. Inflammatory arthritis, maybe that's through gout or rheumatoid arthritis. Those are actually going to be you know, more pathological in terms of there's something else at, um, at work. So like with you know, rheumatoid arthritis, that would, be an, that would be an actual autoimmune disease where you're the immune cells. In those cases, there's, it, so it kind of depends. So I would ask, you know, my clients, what type of arthritis do you have? A lot of the times it's just, how does this feel? It's so much of it is almost reactionary where it's, it's very scientific where it's just, all right, I'm going to poke you and you're going to tell me how that feels. And then I'm going to, I'm going to decompress this and we're going to see how that feels. And so it kind a lot of it goes case by case, but I would say by far and large, most of it would be decompressive. You would just be trying to provide space, let the the fluids inside of the joints kind of reestablish themselves. There's an interesting thing. I'm actually kind of passionate about inversion tables. It's something that I have a bad back. And so for me, I love doing inversions. I find it to be very valuable. But what's interesting is when you actually take pressure off of cartilage, very quickly, all of the fluids that will that had been squeezed out can then be replenished and go right back in. The same thing happens in the, cartilag- in the cartilage's inside of the of the the digits and your fingers and your and your toes. So I find decompression to be very valuable, but it, by no means the only thing. A lot of times it's just having a conversation with them about, well, I mean, you obviously need to still use your hands. So how can we use your hands properly? How can we build the strength that you need? Um, because at the end of the day, even though they want to not use them, using them is actually the most important thing they can do to help the tissues all be strong enough to help properly get rid of any excess fluid or inflammation. So it's it's a case-by-case basis most of the time. Yes, I would agree. And I'm thinking of a couple of clients who sometimes come to me and they'll say like one finger feels really stiff. So if a, fing- if a finger is stiff, it's because the joint doesn't have the same kind of fluid to give it some motion. 
And so something like decompression, maybe Joe's uh, hands tensometer to extend and stretch open the fingers. I don't know. I'm just I'm just thinking if people's fingers are stiff, you still want them to go through the activity, the exercise. You just have to be mindful. Exactly. Perfect. Perfectly said. You want them to go through the exercise because at the end of the day, the body is going to almost act like a cast, right? So if there's some kind of damage, the body is, this is the whole basis behind stiffness with any injury anywhere in the body is that your body actually locks the area down. So you don't move. So you don't make it worse. But the thing is, if you do that for a long enough time frame, then the body starts to atrophy, tissues start to con contract. And so then you, you find yourself in this catch 22 type of situation where it's like, well, I, I, I can't move because it's going to hurt. But if I don't move, then it's going to be stuck and it's going to hurt worse. And so if you have when you're left with those choices, movement is the better option. Most of the time, there's usually this initial uh, period where it's saying movement is probably not the best, you know, rest in the initial stages of any type of injury or inflammatory bout rest is probably the best thing to do in those initial stages, but pretty quickly, you're going to want to start to move. And this is seen throughout every joint, every condition you could possibly think of, even in hospital settings, when they're post-surgery, the nurses will be getting the patients to get up and move, even though that's the very last thing they want to do. So movement is important because that's what tells the body look, we need to continue moving. We're not going to lay down scar tissue yet. We're not going, or if we do, we're going to lay scar tissue down in such a way that it works with movement as opposed to against movement. So finding that way to move functionally and dynamically is one of the most important things you can possibly do. Coming from a massage therapy background, I'm very curious, as I'm sure many of our listeners, when you went from massaging living bodies to that of um, non-living bodies. What was that experience like for you? I mean, the very first time you're dealing with, you're used to someone giving you feedback. Oh yeah, you're pressing too hard. Oh, that feels good. But now you don't. And what was it like just to sort of get in there? And I mean, it takes a certain kind of person to deal with that. You know, it was one of the most incredibly exciting and humbling experiences of my entire life. And I think that's it's it's a very common experience for those who work with cadavers or just work with the dead. And the first time you were actually able to be in that situation, in that environment, it's there's no way to really prepare for it. Um, there's no real way to first prepare for the first cut you're going to make. You know, the first time you put scalpel to tissue, the first time you start to there's, so there's different tools, and I don't know that it's overly useful for me to get into the nuances of them, but you know, some, they have cl there's clamping tools to actually grab the tissue, pull it back, and then you can use scalpels and scissors. And when you're starting to go through all of that, there's no way to prepare for it. It's one of those things that you just have to experience. And for me, it was I don't I don't even know how the best way to put it outside of just incredible. And it's 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 a it's a it's a commonly used adjective, but I think it's probably the best one for me. Going, I, I actually, I'll tell you this story. Uh, there was this time, this wasn't quite my first time that I was dissecting, but it wasn't that far after that. I was dissecting the hamstring. So I was in the posterior thigh. I was breaking apart a lot of the connective tissue so that I could see the actual muscles. And I was just completely lost in the work. And all of a sudden I look over my shoulder and notice that I have to be to work to go massage a client in 10 minutes. And I'm about 10 minutes away. So I am in this panic. I put everything away and I just somehow miraculously make it on time. And lo and behold, the client wants me to work on their hamstrings. Oh my God. So I, so this is all in the span of about 10 minutes. I go from dissecting <laughs> hamstrings for my very first time to then massaging hamstrings. It was the single greatest hamstring massage I have ever given. And that client was so appreciative. He was a cyclist. I remember this. I remember this like it was yesterday. And this was about 12 years ago. He was a cyclist. He had experienced hamstring pain like for years. And all of a sudden, he felt better than he's ever felt, or at least that he could remember. And to me, I remember as I was massaging the hamstrings, I developed what I like to, I now nickname anatomist vision, where it went from beforehand, and this is all aspects of massage, whether I was massaging the arms, the hands, the pecs, you name it. 
you kind of assume you know what's underneath, but all of a sudden I now had an actual knowledge. There was there was no assumption. There was no, you know, it was just Yeah, 10 minutes prior. 10 minutes prior. 10 minutes prior. <laughs> I knew what I was doing. I knew where things were. And the level of precision in terms of my technique skyrocketed. And I I actually I did massage, you know, I was doing massage seven days a week for about five or six years after that point still. And but that I I truly believe that to be the turning point in my massage career where I just was much better now. And it's not that I actually learned any new techniques or anything as much as I just knew. That's it. I just knew where things were. And so it was much easier for me to treat. So in terms of like, what was it like, you know, dissecting the first time the hands, the, the, um, the hands are, I, I will say this actually about the hands. The hands are notoriously difficult to dissect and almost frustratingly difficult because the tissue is so adhered. And so your listeners can actually do this at home or as they're listening, if they just like place your hand in front of you and then you just kind of like cup it, almost like you're cupping some water to drink out of it. And you look at your palm, the skin doesn't really bunch up that much. But if you try to, if you then look at your forearm and did the same thing, like it doesn't really quite work that way. But if you could somehow do it, you can see how the skin is far more flaccid, flabby, loosely connected. And that's because there is a bunch of tissue in your hand called retinaculum. It's a dense piece of connective tissue that anchors the skin to the tendons and muscles underneath. So the skin doesn't bunch up when you grip. Trying to dissect that away is extraordinarily difficult because the tissue does not want to go away. The tissue does not want to release. Everywhere else, and I don't mean to be graphic, it is very easy to take the skin and the integumentary system off the body, not the hands and not the feet. Those are easily the most challenging places to the point where now I refuse to do it and I have our interns do it. And then uh, and then I just get to... And then I just get to bask in the glory of their work because it's amazing to look at. But I remember, you know, the first time dissecting the hand, dissecting the forearm, just noticing and noting the intricacy of all of the tissues, how adhered everything is. The, the hands, arms, and the feet and the legs are very unique because I actually, those are homologous structures, meaning they're essentially very similar, right? Your hands are very similar anatomically speaking to the feet as are your antebrachiums or your forearms are very similar to your lower legs. So when you're dissecting it, there's a lot of common threads that you can see as you're doing it. But it's it's a very powerful experience and a, a laborious experience too, an intricate experience is what I would say. Do you think because the hands, and let's just take the hands and the feet, because the skin and the tissue is so adhered to the tendons and the and the joints does that play a role in when you get injured the healing process because there's less fatty tissue or less tissue to sort of cushion as these uh, appendages are healing absolutely absolutely there's actually a condition now this is more of a pathology not just and so but i think it'll help paint a picture it's called the poitrin's contracture poitrin's contracture is where there's something called the palmar fascia deep to the deep to the integumentary system of your palm. And what will happen is it will contract. And as it contracts, it forces the hand into this claw-like shape. Sometimes it'll only affect a couple of fingers. But the same thing would happen if you get a cut. So let's say you get a cut on your hand, you get a scrape on your hand, and you forming scar tissue, you are now going to further anchor the tissues to one another because they're already so adhered. You're just furthering this. So injuries to the hand, they can come with some very serious mobility issues later on, if not even soon after. You know, I mean, it's not to say people weren't aware of this, but protecting your hands is extraordinarily important, just as protecting the rest of your body. But considering how much we use our hands and for the wide variety of ways we use our hands, it becomes even more important because literally just small cuts could, they may not, but they could have far-reaching consequences in terms of just causing the tissues to contract. Speaking of yoga and Pilates instructors, how do they hear about you first off? And then when they want to come to your lab to learn from you, I'm curious, like I'm asking you questions, I'm curious if yoga and Pilates teachers as a whole ask you different questions just based on our experience in our body opposed to, for example, like a, a paramedic. How they find us is different now than it used to be because when we first opened, we were just only a brick and mortar location. And so it was pretty much word of mouth. What happened was we originally opened, this is actually fascinating. Um, so the owner 
and founders. So there's two of them. So uh, my lab partner, if anyone watches our content, they'll probably recognize Jonathan. Jonathan Benyon is the, and his brother-in-law, Jeremy Jones, are the owners and founders. And originally what happened is Jonathan also worked at the massage school that I worked at. In fact, that's where we met. And he started the whole private cadaver lab because there wasn't, there was a vacuum. You know, you had an entire group of people, especially like in the trade uh, schools. So you have like massage therapists, you had medical assistants, dental, like you had all the, you had all these groups that just didn't have access to a university level cadaver lab. And he saw that. And, but originally it was only catered to massage therapists in the beginning because he simply worked at a massage school. But what happened was, as I'm sure you understand, you know, the Pilates community is connected to the yoga community, is connected to everyone's connected to everyone. Everyone knows everyone, at least in some way, and word of mouth spread. So for most of our time as a company, it's been word of mouth and it's just spread through that. But now that we're on social media, it's a lot easier for people to find us. We are getting, we get reached out to quite often from people out of state who are even willing to fly in to come hang out to see if they can come participate in a lab experience with us. So at this point, you know, a lot of times we have, we have relationships built with certain communities of people. Um, so like a lot of our yoga teaching certification courses that come through, we've been teaching them for now almost 10 years. And so we kind of just understand that school, they come through with us and they've actually contracted with us. And we are actually part of their curriculum, which is fantastic for a lot of these different schools. When it comes to Pilates, you know, um, we're behind, we're behind. We need, we need you. <laughs> very much so. Uh, but you know, I mean, making strides, at least in terms of, you know, I'm starting to hear more about Pilates wanting to come to the lab, Pilates instructors and Pilates practitioners wanting to come to the lab. So, you know, I, I, you're, you're behind, but I think you're making, you're, you're making strides. You're making strides. <laughs> okay. But in terms of, you know, what questions do they ask? What's fascinating is they don't ask that many different questions because at least in the first lab, because everyone is just kind of in this awe type of state where, you know, like as soon as you walk through the door, you're like, you, you'll see it. Uh, you, there's, we have, we actually store the cadavers at room temperature wrapped in plastic uh -oh. on the tables in the lab. So as soon as you walk in, you're seeing six bodies that are actually on tables. Oh. And so there's kind of like this shock. And then Jonathan or myself, we'll start unwrapping the bodies. And then you get the, the whole experience is just washing over them. I often tell whenever we're doing like the we're starting a lab, I'll, I'll ask who's nervous. And there's usually a few people. And I say that's totally normal. In fact, I'd almost be worried if you weren't nervous or, you know, like if there wasn't some kind of trepidation at some point with this. But what I find is pretty quickly people adapt. And usually, because our labs are usually two to three hour long experiences, depends on the exact cohort. And usually by the end of it, I almost have to kick them out of the lab. You know, they were, they were, didn't want to do it. They were really nervous. And now they're completely adapted. But even still, when we start going through it, a lot of times what people do is they just look to Jonathan or myself and say, tell us about this muscle, tell us about this structure. And then what we do is we just kind of say our thing. And then they may ask a question that's more relevant to their specific profession. So, but they may not. A lot of times people are just wanting to see it and understand it, but that's only in the first lab. If they are able to come back for sequential labs, then they kind of, they get over that shock and awe. Then they can come in with more practical questions. What I've noticed with yoga practitioners and Pilates practitioners is most of the questions are just going to be focused around muscles that are highly or hyper relevant to what you're doing. So people will look at me, tell me about the shoulder girdle. Tell me about the rotator cuff. Like you're asked, tell me about the hand. Tell That's a lot of the questions we get where EMTs, for instance, aren't concerned almost at all with muscles. An EMT, on the other hand, will say, tell me about the airways. Tell me about this. But what's, what's interesting is the more we get to teach with these groups, the better Jonathan and I get. So now when I teach EMTs, I'm able to, because I've been asked so many questions from so many of their students over the past 10 years, I'm able to really make a unique experience for them. What's interesting is Pilates. I haven't had enough Pilates practitioners in the lab yet to be able to create, to know exactly what, what are the, what are the pain points for 
Pilates practitioners? What do they really want to know? And so that's why it's fascinating getting to talk with you and yes. the fascination with grip alone and that type of quest, your type of questions will actually help me the next time I teach Pilates practitioners, because if they're in that shock and awe state and they don't know what to ask, I can then be like, well, let me tell you about grip. And then I know that'll likely that'll um, trigger something that they can then ask. And if you start taking Pilates classes and get on the apparatus, you'll have the vocabulary. So for example, you might say, well, if we're in a, a long stretch position on the reformer, everybody will absolutely know what you're talking about. So then someone might start asking you questions about the shoulder girdle or maybe what's happening with the pelvis because some people teach it in a more of a vertical neutral position with the pelvis and then some teach it very curled under. That was another question to this question is when somebody asks you about a body part and they are maybe more interested in just the origin and insertion and the action of a, a certain muscle group. Do you then go to one of your cadavers and show them inside what they could experience visually while you're explaining what is actually taking place? Absolutely. So depends on, so some, sometimes we don't have specific muscles or structures currently dissected, but if we do, and someone asks that question, I will go get that cadaver part. So for instance, um, the other day I was teaching a lab. I can't remember the group, but someone asked me about the knee and I was just kind of talking about it. And then I sat there and I said, just wait a second. And I just went back and I went and grabbed a knee that I had dissected. And the knee itself was a far better instructor than I am because I all I had to do was just start moving the knee. And I immediately answered their question. Um, whenever possible, we want to show these structures to them. And then we talk them through it and we try to make it as relevant to their profession as and or, or what the question they have as as possible and it's not always doable sometimes it's just it's one of those things we have to keep it in the abstract and they have to simply listen to me talk and hopefully that's good enough but whenever possible we will always show them they will get to see it and they get to touch it because we provide them gloves so they're able to hold the cadaver specimens they're able to see poke like look around and see what are the what are the surrounding structures get a real understanding of what they're um, looking at and so that they can go and put that into action. Well, then speaking about touching, even through gloves, the sensation of dead tissue opposed to live tissue is going to be different, right? 100%. So the, the, when, when, you, when you embalm the cadavers or embalm, when you embalm someone, what you're doing is you're going to denature proteins which is going to do two things. First, it's going to change the texture and it's also going to change the color slightly. And then also when you remove the blood, that's all done, by the way, that, that's not done by us. That's done through by embalmers well before we actually get the bodies. But yes, there, in order to preserve the body, this is kind of a, this is a very accurate analogy, but it, it, it's not always, always the most comfortable one. They're basically pickles, right? Like if you think like a cucumber, to a pickle transformation or any type of pickle, think like kimchi, any kind of lacto-fermentation, when you are doing chemistry to something, you have to change the structure of it. And that's exactly what happens. But what's fascinating is over the years, the embalming process has gotten so much better that even though there is textural differences, it's not that far off. You know, it's it's, or even if it is, it's still not so far off that it's might as well be just, you know, fake or if that, if that makes sense, right. It's, it's still something that's completely understandable and people are saying, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So embalming preservation and techniques have come a long way, but you can't avoid the texture being different, which is why, you know, that's why you, you learn in the lab and then you put into practice when you go with your clients, your students or whatever you're trying to do. Is this facility in Utah? Uh, so, well, are you talking the body donor donation? Oh, you call it body donation. Yes. So we work with multiple different certified body donation programs inside and outside of Utah. There are many of them across the United States. I can't speak to the rest of the world, but in the United States, there are certified and non-certified body donation programs. We only work with certified ones because they are going to be guaranteed for 
you know, uh, to be operating within ethical boundaries that we feel comfortable with. But what we do is then we get the bodies and we act as a steward. Basically, we take the bodies for only a set period of time. And it depends on the specific body donation program. Sometimes we can keep them for a few years. Sometimes we can keep them as long as a decade. As long as we, and then it's up to Jonathan and myself, to properly maintain those cadavers. And we do that with just, that's what we do. You know, our job is to keep the tissues hydrated, is to make sure that everyone is respectful, that everything is done properly. And if you do that, you can keep the bodies for 10 years. But we do, yeah, it's there. The body donation programs are all over the United States and we work with a large amount of them. And you don't learn anything about individual body, who the body was. <laughs> it's a good question. And we don't. We we can if we choose with some body donation programs. But honestly, it's easier to stay detached and to just kind of like to just stay detached from the situation. Not that I ever would, but I don't want even the temptation to look up who that person might have been in real life, you know, online, especially nowadays, it's so easy. So the only information we actively get that we choose to get is going to be their age and what they passed from. That's it. I literally know nothing else about the cadavers, which is actually very exciting because when we're doing the dissection process, we may find things. For instance, on one of the cadavers, uh, Jonathan was dissecting him and found he had blown out his Achilles at one point, right? So he there was a giant scar where the Achilles tendon was meeting the gastrocnemius muscle. And that was never going to be on any kind of medical history. It's that's not required by those body donation programs to do it. But we find all sorts of interesting quirks of anatomy. We found one cadaver, for instance, that didn't have the correct number of lobes in her right lung. You know, like we find all sorts of stuff. I often tell people if um, I was somehow able to dissect you, and then show you, <laughs> I could find all sorts of weird things in your body. So it's it's exciting. I actually, I have a little nickname. I, I like to, or I don't know if nickname's the right way. I like to call it Sherlock Holmesing, where basically we open the bodies and I find little things. And then I try and deduce what that could have meant for their life and what they did, their profession possibly. But all of those are just, you know, their assumptions, their speculation, because again, the only information we get is their age and what they passed from. Are you documenting all of this per cadaver? Not typically. Well, so I should say it's not that we're discovering something that is probably like we would put in any kind of research paper. All of these are pretty well understood in terms of statistically, it's possible for these variabilities within our species to occur. And for us, we don't typically document it because we're such a small lab and we have so few cadavers. We're able to, we're just able to store it all upstairs in our in uh -oh. our minds. At the same time, though, I would not be surprised if that is something we start doing in the future. Just saying, hey, this body, we found this, we found this, we found this. But I, at this point, I just I work with these cadavers every single day, and so and I teach with them. We're on social media with them, so it's like it's I'm it's so much on the forefront of my mind that I'm just able to kind of speak about it very very fluently. And you don't keep your your lab at a certain room temperature. No, no, no. Nope, it's normal. It's normal room temperature. I mean, I think it's 68 degrees, as I think is what it is, but that's actually controlled throughout the building, uh, not so much just our lab specifically. But no, uh, there's no, the like, it's it's it often surprises people. We have no refrigeration equipment. We're not dipping the bodies into formaldehyde or anything. Preservation techniques have come a long way. And so we literally just wrap them in a very thick form of plastic, and then we spray the bodies down with a water-based uh, wetting agent that also has some alcohol in it. But then you just spray them down every once in a while. You wrap them up tight. You can store them at room temperature for a decade or more. That's very amazing. When you say embalming, does that imply that there's they take all the blood out? Is that what is that the same thing? Yes, and 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 I don't I. Again, I'm not an embalmer. Every time we get to speak with embalmers, it's like almost like a kid in a candy store where I'm asking them question after question. Embalmers are amazing people. They're essentially chemists that are finding different preservatives that they can use on the bodies. And it's not always the same cocktail. I, I've asked them multiple times, what preservatives did you use on this body? And they'll say, ah, I'd have to go look and see because they document it, but they they don't always know. But actually, I'm I'm so sorry. I forgot. What was what was your question? Because you reiterate that I got lost on tangent. <laughs> I think I got lost too. 
Well, I started out by asking you, does embalming mean that there's no more blood? That was it. That was it. Thank you. So embalming, when you embalm the cadavers, what we the technique that's used on the cadavers we have in the lab is they'll make an incision into the anterior neck, and that's where they can find the artery called the carotid artery. From there, they'll they'll make an incision into the carotid, and then they'll insert tubing that'll be attached to a pump. They will then pump through at various stages, multiple different kinds of chemicals that will go throughout the entire cardiovascular system. So the bodies will actually bloat to an extent. But then what'll happen is since they're bloated, they then take this, essentially it's a long syringe called a trocar and manually extract the fluids. And the blood comes out with the embalming preservatives. So what you're left with is a bloodless, again, pickle is essentially what you have. And so again, that's what's nice from a teaching perspective for us. We are a gross anatomy lab and we don't say gross as in disgusting, gross as in what you can see with your eye. That is the best way to teach because without blood, you can see all the structures very clearly. And so uh, every cadaver we have in our lab does not have blood. I'm glad that you cleared that up because when I watch your videos, it always seems sort of like like a leather purse or something. It just seems very sort of, depending on which body part, sort of floppy. But that's because there's there's the life force is gone and it's just skin and tissue that you have to continue to hydrate. Absolutely. And the other thing to take to make note of is that the cadavers that you see in our videos were all elderly and likely died of some disease because... If let's say if you agree to donate your body, that's also agreeing to donate organs. So let's say if you know you're in your 30s and you die, well, what's a better use of your body? Donating your organs to save lives or preserving you to actually go to like a med school or something. So what they find is this depends on the specific body donation program, but many of them have rules where they won't actually accept a body that's under the age of 55 or 60 years old. And if you're under that age, that means you're going to be more, you're going to be donating your organs to save lives. So then that what that leaves us with are those who are 60 or older, and not to say that 60 is elderly, but <laughs> obviously you. 60 is going to be older. <laughs> a lot of like the youngest cadaver we have in our lab is 69 years old. The oldest cadaver we have in our lab died at 95 years old. And so then a lot of times when you're looking at these tissues, it's not, they're older and they died of cancer. They died of a stroke, you know, as they're aging, their body started to deteriorate away. So that's the other thing we always try to tell people is a young, or not even necessarily relatively young, but a, a younger and a healthier person, your body's going to look different. Even if I could preserve you, if I could preserve a 20 year old and put it side by side, the 95 year old, the body's obviously going to look different. So it's effect, they're effective teaching tools, but they're not always accurate representations of what most people look like, right? This is where, that's why it, um, it's, it, it depends on Jonathan and I to do our best to explain that, to let you know exactly what you're looking at, what are the circumstances around what you're looking at, so that people can make sense of it. You two are, are fabulous in explaining what you are sharing online. And I wanted to ask you about 5 million plus on YouTube, how many millions on TikTok, I guess. You have a total of total of 15 million, something like that? I think we just crossed 16 million. I think that's what we did in total. We have 10.2 million followers on TikTok. I think we're closing in on 400,000 followers on Instagram. And then we have 5.3 million on YouTube. It has been absolutely wild because... When we first posted on TikTok, our very first TikTok was TikTok was the very first platform we posted on. I remember this very clearly. That it was November 4th, 2019. That's the day everything changed because I had been working with TikTok, right? Jonathan, Jeremy, and myself, again, owners and myself, we'd all talked about, hey, we're going to go online. Let's do make sure we do this right. But November 4th, 2019 is when I pushed publish on our very first video. And I remember I was sitting there with my wife. We were just making dinner. And I was like, all right, I'm going to push publish. I'm not, a, I, at this point, I'm not a big social media person. I just push publish. And then I just carry on with my day. Like we go make dinner. We're just having a nice time as a family. 
And then I'm like, oh yeah, I published that. I should probably look at that. And it has 500,000 views. And I sat there and I was like, oh, oh boy. And then the next morning it had over a million views. And that has been the story from the very beginning. So a week after uh, TikTok, we decided to then make our first YouTube video. Then I think a week after that or so, we decided to get on Instagram. And it's just been this constant thing where we are very fortunate to, you know, most people are working very long and very hard to get the kind of numbers that we have done very quickly. Granted, we're working very hard and we're, we're putting in the effort, but we also understand, you know, we have not necessarily a cheat code, but the, the cadavers are the stars in a lot of the way, in a lot of the ways, at least in the visual. Jonathan and I are the, we're the stars in terms of how we can explain things, but the cadavers are the ones that we really believe deserve most of the praise. And what's been fascinating is just to see how quickly it's accelerated. We benefited with TikTok, getting in before TikTok was very big. When we were communicating with TikTok, there was no other science creators on the app. So they were excited talking with us saying, oh, we would love to get educators and specifically science educators on here. No one yes. else is on here. We were the very first. So it's like we we were also lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time, but also having the foresight to understand, ooh, TikTok is going to be pretty special. YouTube, it's it, YouTube has been filled with ups and downs. YouTube is a very hard platform to be successful on, even if you do have cadavers. And especially for those early years, it's very difficult to put even a bloodless cadaver on YouTube and to get it approved. We now are fortunate enough. Again, YouTube has recognized what we're doing and they have now started to work with us. So now we have at least a connection inside of YouTube that we can say, you know, we can look to to help with getting some content approved, but still it's it can be very difficult because at the end of the day, these social platforms, you know, they have a wide reach. And so I understand from their perspective, it's like they have to be careful how, who's getting these cadavers exposed to them in what way, which is why we're so proud of the fact that we work with these social platforms now to make sure that these are happening in the right ways. But to say, like, how did we get to 5.3 million? How did we get to 10.2 million? You know, there's that, that's that would probably be an entire podcast in and of itself. I guess I could probably really, you know, dilute it down to posting consistency and for us really studying it as soon as we posted that first TikTok and we started to take off, um, that's when Jonathan, Jeremy, and I, we sat down, we went to lunch and we're like, okay, so this is the thing now. Like now this is part of how this works. And I, I told them, I was like, I, I'm going to go full time. I'm going to do, I'm going to quit working, teaching, and I'm going to do this full time. And for me on my end, it was a lot of studying. I was watching TikTok videos. I was watching YouTube videos, taking notes, figuring out how to not only make good no not how to how to make good content so it's just been a wild ride of posting very 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 consistently on all these platforms and slowly incrementally getting better with everything we do and that's where you we've somehow landed at 16 million followers across all our all of our platforms let me ask you any comment or question that stands out from all the people that are your subscribers Anyone? That's that's a really good question. I mean, there's probably quite a few that I could pull from. A lot of times, I think some of the most impactful questions are just kind of like something around like people understanding the benefit of body donation and what that can actually do. Because a lot of times when people think about body donation, they don't really understand what that means outside of maybe you don't pay funeral costs, which is true, by the way, which is a fantastic reason to donate your body. But what's been interesting is I think the impact we've made and people seeing if I do donate my body, people can learn. Maybe maybe I, I won't be on YouTube with these guys, my body, but people are starting to understand what this actually means to med students, new discoveries, doctors who are trying to, you know, further their understanding of the body, to Pilates practitioners, to everyone. And so what I think has been interesting is that a lot of the comments that stand out to me are those around people saying, thank you for what you're doing not is not as and not in this way to like glorify us in particular as much as we helped them realize the power of donating your body the power of you know expanding understanding how to, to how am i trying to say this just we help them understand what 
can be done with body donation and how that can help improve medicine, how that can help improve countless people's careers. And because if you think about like uh, with Pilates specifically, you know, the Pilates groups that I've had, they then leave there and they are able to do better with their clients. With their, so you, when you see the ripple effect of this, seeing the comments of that always stand out. I can see hundreds of comments and it's not that I just scan through them. I, I am reading them, but the ones that consistently stand out are the ones who are just saying, thank you. This is awesome. This is incredible. Thank you for what you're doing. If any yoga or a certainly Pilates instructor who's listening wants to have a chat with you, what's the best way? It is a little more difficult to do that these days than it has been in the past. You know, we, Jonathan and I are, it's funny, like Jonathan right now, I'm in a room adjacent to the lab. Jonathan's in the lab right now filming a YouTube video. If he's done by the end of this podcast, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to film some TikToks. What we recommend is right now, like we're almost always trying to film and because we're to have so much on that we're trying to do. Like we're also trying to make out, um, make online courses for people for all sorts of career paths, including like continuing education credits for massage therapists. But if we have the time, the best way to contact us would be to go through our website. So if you go to instituteofhumananatomy.com, there's a contact form that'll actually make its way to us. And that is the single best way to, uh, to try and get in contact with us. And if we have the time, if we have the ability to meet with you, it's something Jonathan and I absolutely love to do. You know, uh, but I will say it can be it can be hard at times, especially if we get a high influx of those requests. But we are always open to the possibility of doing it. Fabulous, Justin Cottle. Just thank you so much for all your knowledge, and I'm envisioning you're having a Pilates experience soon, and you're going to love it, and you will have no more back pain. I can, I can, I can see it now too. It's, I it's can a, guarantee it's you. I can guarantee you no more back pain. All right. I'm, I'll, I'll do it. You, you sold, you sold right. me. I'm doing it. Thank you, Justin. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Darren. All Things Pilates is produced, written, edited, and hosted by me, Darian Gold. Mastered audio mix by Fabian Romero. This season has all original music by AKA Johnny. And if you're loving this podcast, leaving a review would be most appreciated. There is great power associated with our hands. Use them wisely and respectfully. For teachers, how you place your hands and the message they send to your students needs to be very clear. If you're a student, perhaps your tactile awareness will increase, along with a greater appreciation for your teacher. Thanks so much for tuning in and meet you here in a couple of weeks for another episode of All Things Pilates.